Brilliant. Now, I'm hoping that uh, Wizzy Tech is going to be our friend um, tonight because uh, I've got uh, a little control thing here which allows me to control the slides just here, which is good because we've got movie clips and I know where they go. So um, hopefully this is all going to uh, work well for us. I don't know if um, you've seen the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Can I quick show of hands? Who has seen it? I know that Sarah says, yes, 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 yes. So a few people have seen it. Um, I think it came out in about 2001 or two thereabouts. I can't quite remember. So it was a while ago. Um, some people in the room weren't even born uh, when the film was released. Um, some people in the room were probably only five or six or seven when the film was released. Um, I was an adult running a cinema when the film was released, so uh, I show my age a little bit with that. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, it's a, I hope that tonight will whet your appetite to go and watch the film in full, because it is a re really extraordinary film, um, and uh, you're going to see some clips from it tonight, and um, hopefully it will uh, be something engaging for us on this subject. Oscar Wilde once said this, Every saint has a past and every sinner a future. And the experience of countless Christians through the centuries bears witness to the truthfulness of that quotation. I expect that every one of us here is well aware of things in our past that we'd rather forget. Moments where we behaved in ways that we know, either later or even at the time, that they didn't reflect the kind of people that God has called us to be, or indeed the kind of people that we want to be ourselves. I'm going to tell you one of the stories from my own life, which I think illustrates what I mean. It's a story from my past which reveals my own sinfulness, my own fallenness, a story of really poor decision-making and dishonesty. When I was just 17 years old, um, about a month past my birthday, maybe just two or three weeks past my birthday, I began to learn to drive. At around the same time, I used to regularly go off to a friend's house during free periods at school to smoke dope. And one particular occasion, I smoked far too much dope, or rather the dope was far too strong, or perhaps a combination of the two, and I got very stoned. I missed the rest of the day's lessons at school and instead crawled into my friend's spare bed, hoping and praying that the effects of the dope would wear off before that afternoon's driving lesson. I couldn't tell you, honestly, whether or not the effects had fully worn off, but I certainly knew then, as I know now, that the sensible thing to do would have been to call off the lesson. But I was too embarrassed by the truth of what had happened and too eager for my driving lesson to do the sensible thing. And so I went on a two-hour driving lesson that day, possibly still high as a kite. <laughs> Maybe streaming on Facebook Live was not such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> the lesson itself 
my bishop is watching. Um, the lesson itself turned out to be fine, and there were no accidents or near misses, thank God. But I couldn't enjoy it at all, and I spent the whole time longing for it to be over. I got home after that lesson, and I walked into the living room. My dad was sitting there, and as he looked up from his paper, he asked me with a smile on his face how the lesson had been, at which point I burst into tears and confessed all. (laughs) I tell you this story because there are two equal and opposite dangers for Christians with incidents in our past such as this. One danger is to revel in the past. As we look back on our lives, we know that they will be full of deeds and thoughts which we deem to be sinful or bad. And despite God's grace in our lives, perhaps preventing us from any serious harm in our foolishness, we can sometimes glorify the errors of our past. Have you ever heard people tell kind of humorous stories about just how drunk they were and what a near miss they had? Perhaps you've told these stories yourself. I certainly have. But it's a strange thing. For in retelling stories from our past in a way which revels and delights in them, even though we know now and perhaps even knew then that they were not God's best for us, somehow we collude with that part of the world which wants us to believe that life according to God's plan for us is somehow less fun or less enjoyable. Because if the kind of sin and the folly that we are aware of in our past is so attractive in its retelling then are we secretly yearning for it to be a present reality in our lives? So that's one danger. But the opposite danger is the one that I want to focus on tonight. It's the danger of trying to obliterate, deny, or bury our past. As though it's not part of who we are now. As though it should be covered up and hidden away. This can be a real temptation uh, for anybody, but for Christians in particular, especially if we've spent some of our adult life in active rebellion against God's will for our lives. Many of us are going to have areas of our lives where we know that we have not lived up to the call of Christ. As uh, one of the ancient prayers of confession uh, puts it, we've wounded his image in us. Our lives have marred his love, wounded his image in us. When we then come into relationship with God and Jesus Christ and we join in with the fellowship of believers in the church, it can be tempting to hide away all that is past, to try to forget that it ever happened, to obliterate it, bury it, and deny it. And I want to illustrate this temptation by looking at the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and then by looking at how Jesus responds to Peter's efforts to forget his painful memories. From the first time I saw the film, Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, in 2003 or 4, I felt as though it had something to say about precisely this issue, the desire to obliterate the past as a means of escaping pain. The film is essentially a love story, but it also deals with this philosophical question about whether it's better to remember or to forget our past pains and mistakes. In fact, twice in the film, the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche is quoted as saying, Blessed are the forgetful, for they get the better even of their blunders. You can't see that quote very well because it doesn't have a black background, but maybe, Frey, you can find one for it. 
Blessed are the forgetful, for they get the better, even of their blunders. I've got a few clips from the film to help explain the story and to illustrate this point about how we deal with our past. But if you don't know anything about the film, what you need to know from the beginning is that it's about a couple, Joel and Clementine, who apparently meet for the first time on a Long Island beach on Valentine's Day 2004 when Joel, upon some impulse, skips work. But immediately, it suggested that not all is as it seems. Pages ripped out. Don't remember doing that. It appears this is my first entry in two years. Sand is overrated. It's just tiny little rocks. chances of that happening are somewhat diminished, seeing that I'm incapable of making eye contact with a woman I don't know. Joel has noticed in this opening scene from the film that he hasn't written an entry in his diary for two years. In fact, we'll later discover that he's handed over two years of entries to be destroyed as part of a process intended to destroy his memories of the past. As the film unfolds, we witness scenes from the past two years during which we discover that Joel and Clementine, in fact, are not meeting on that beach for the first time that Valentine's Day, but that they've spent most of the past two years in a relationship. However, as the relationship has stagnated and even deteriorated, it transpires that Clementine has turned to the services of a peculiar company named Lacuna Inc., Lacuna, which indeed itself means an empty space or a gap where something should be, are a company who specialize in the process of identifying and destroying memories. Here's the advertisement for the company. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. Our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you never imagined possible. Don't forget, with Lacuna, you can forget. Why remember pain? Surely it's better for to forget. Well, Clementine has um, eventually decided to have all her memories of her relationship with Joel obliterated. Upon discovering this one day, as she blanks him completely and kisses her new boyfriend before his eyes, Joel decides in his confusion, pain and anger, to do exactly the same. If she can obliterate all her memories of him, why should he not do the same for her? Here's the scene where he requests the procedure from Lacuna. Wait, 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 wait. No, Dr. I'm sorry, doctor. He just barged right in here. Okay. I want it done. I told him pre-Valentine's Day is our busy oh, time. That, I mean, there that's, are other... that's, that's okay, Mary. But there are people waiting. Mr. Barish, if you'd like to, uh, to come inside. Uh, Mary, if you could take care yes, of Mrs. Yes, of course. Rula. Goodbye, Mrs. Wooler. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh... 
The first thing we need you to do, Mr. Barish, is to go home and collect everything you own that has some association with Clementine. Anything. We'll use these items to create a map of Clementine in your brain, okay? So we'll need uh, uh, photos, clothing, gifts, books she may have bought you, CDs you may have bought together, journal entries. You want to empty your home, you want to empty your life of Clementine. And after the mapping is done, our technicians will do the erasing in your home tonight. That way, when you awake in the morning, you find yourself in your own bed as if nothing had happened. A new life awaiting you. He has just one concern. Is there any risk of brain damage? Well, uh, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage, but it's, it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you miss. Having gone through all of the preliminaries, Joel heads home to his apartment, takes an anesthetic drug, and passes out, awaiting the company to undertake the memory destruction procedure. Here the film turns slightly more surreal as we start to journey with Joel through his memories. And in so doing, we're exposed to his memories of his relationship with Clementine, both good and bad. However, there's a problem. Something the technicians have done, attributed probably to some change in the voltage of their equipment, has caused Joel to be conscious within his own memories though still unable to move physically due to the anaesthetic. As Joel surveys his own memory, he comes to the conclusion that even a painful memory of a failed relationship is better than no memory at all. He changes his mind and wants to have the procedure called off. In a moving scene, we see one of his happiest moments with Clementine and his realization that his memory of this particular moment will soon be lost. I could die right now, Clem. I'm just... <laughs> I've never felt that before. I'm just exactly where I want to be. Clint? We're going off. I'll give you a sign. We're going off. Can you hear me? I don't want this anymore. I want to call it off. Stop what? Jolie. 
So Joel embarks on a frantic journey through his mind, fleeing with his memories of Clementine to try to outrun the obliteration of his memories by Lacuna. We see his memories of times together with Clementine gradually deteriorating. We see people disappearing from Grand Central Station. We see the spines of books in the bookstore where Clementine works going blank before our eyes. We're going to see my grandma. Joel, what? Joel, what? Joel, please, don't make me run Come on! Where's we at? I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged. Hmm, probably. I still thought you were going to save my life. Even after that. different if we could just give it another go round remember me try your best maybe we can one of the most moving closing scenes uh, of the film we see a memory of their first meeting at a beach party on that same Long Island beach. As we witness the very beginning of their romance, the beach house that they're in falls apart, and the sand and the sea seem to threaten every last detail of the memory. But Clementine has an idea. Couldn't they rewrite the memory, falsify the reality, and leave their conscious waking selves a message that might lead to another chance meeting. This, of course, is the message which has led to Joel impulsively taking a day off work to head to that same Long Island beach as we witnessed in the opening scene of the film. That part of his memory was not destroyed and the message remained intact and Joel and Clementine meet again as those strangers for the first time. Now that's not quite where the film ends. And there's one final twist for them to overcome, but I'll not speak about that now. I'll leave you to enjoy that for yourself sometime. But let's recap instead. Joel and Clementine, both independent of one another, come to the conclusion that it is better to have no memory at all rather than to remember a bittersweet past. But in the midst of the process, Joel realizes that the obliteration of his memory will not lead to its healing, that the destruction of his memory will not make him truly free. Uh, it was uh, Easter a few weeks ago, as you know. One of the fascinating parts of the Easter story concerns um, one of Jesus' followers named Peter who in the crisis hour uh, failed in his allegiance, in his commitment to following uh, his Lord. This is what happened um, the night before Jesus' death. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard 
But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. As he stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Peter had been uh, incredibly enthusiastic when Jesus was um, predicting his betrayal uh, and being led off to death. Peter said, I'll go with you, Lord. I'll never forget you. I'll be right by your side. But just a couple of hours later, there he was in a courtyard by a fire, denying that he even knew Jesus. Painful memory. Painful memory that Peter had to live with for another couple of days from the Thursday night in the middle of the night time until sometime on the Sunday, on the third day. Of course, we know the Easter story. Jesus was crucified and buried and laid in a tomb. And uh, then on the third day, when the women went to prepare his body properly for burial with spices, they found the stone rolled away and just the grave clothes left. And Jesus was not there. They uh, then Mary Magdalene encountered Jesus, mistaking him first for the gardener, but then recognizing him and was sent a commission to go and tell the rest of Jesus' followers that Jesus was alive. He had conquered death. He was resurrected. And uh, Peter was fetched and came running and discovered it, uh, as had been said. There's an episode towards uh, the end of the Gospel of John in which Jesus and Peter have uh, a conversation. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, there are some amazing details contained uh, in those readings from the Bible, which help us understand the way that God wants to use our memories in our own healing and in our response to his call. Now, after Jesus died, we know that some of the disciples hung around Jerusalem while others began to disperse back to their homes and livelihoods. Think of the disciples who uh, were leaving Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. We know from that account in uh, Luke's gospel that the disciples were confused and disappointed. Their hopes had been shattered. They had to work out how to rebuild their lives and how to deal with this huge disappointment in their own past. I wonder whether some of them might have wished they could simply forget the whole affair. 
But the risen Christ appeared to, to his disciples, both in Jerusalem, but also in this passage that I just read, by the Sea of Galilee. It's as though he was sending them back, just as Joel was sent back to that Long Island beach, so that they could be in the place where they were first met by Jesus three years previously. Now, just as then, three years ago, Peter is fishing when Jesus calls him over. Of course, he doesn't recognize him immediately, but something about this man on the shore calling out to him triggers a memory, a suppressed memory, perhaps. And in the verses that follow, John records what must have amounted to a sensory overload for Peter's memory functions. He would have remembered that he was called to leave his fishing nets and become a fisher of men by Jesus. As he reaches the shore, he sees a fire of burning coals. Now, the Greek word used to describe this charcoal fire, effectively a barbecue, is exactly the same word that was used to describe the fire in the courtyard outside the high priest's house in John 18. This is the fire around which people were huddled to warm themselves when Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. And Jesus reaches the shore, and there's the fire again. And there's Jesus grilling fish. There's bread and fish, reminding Peter of the time when Jesus fed 5,000 and more people with simply bread and fish. But the most potent reminder comes immediately after when Jesus asks Peter those simple questions we heard just now. Three times, do you love me? Each time and with growing frustration, Peter replies, yes. And each time Jesus commissions Peter, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Why is Jesus so repetitive? Wasn't it clear that Peter had got the point? Of course, the truth is that Jesus is confronting Peter's memory of his three denials of Jesus that night before Jesus was crucified. Perhaps amongst all of his memories, this was the one that Peter most wanted to bury away in the depths of his mind, never to be allowed to surface. His shame, his regret, his sense of failure must have been for him, just as they so often are for us, cause enough to lock the memories away. But Jesus will not let him. Jesus gently uses his threefold commission to remind Peter that there is no part of our lives that can be hidden from God's sight. That there is also no part of our lives, no shame, no regret, too deep. Nothing that can be beyond God's healing and redeeming love. For just as Joel discovers in the film, the denial, the burial, the obliteration of our memories doesn't actually free us from the past. Rather, it enslaves us to the present because we can't become people who can only live with a partial history shaped and sculpted by our fears of what other people might think of us if they knew our true past. We become enslaved by the present because we refuse to see ourselves as part of a continuous self, that is, a self that is being shaped and changed by the circumstances and interactions of our whole lives. I think that this is hugely important for the way that we understand the scope of God's love for us, that he wants to engage us as whole people, what we have been, what we are, and what we can become with him. 
Rowan Williams wrote about this idea of memory and forgiveness over 25 years ago. And I want to quote from him now. It's a fairly dense quote, and I'm going to put it up on the screen for you to mull over as I read it. And uh, he begins by talking about what kind of person God is, how God relates to us. And he says, God is the agency that gives us back our memories because God is the presence to which all reality is present. We have already begun to see how the returning of memory is very far from being a congenial and painless process. Because memory is the memory of our responsibility for rejection and injury, for diminution of self and others. And yet, the refusal or denial of memory is likewise diminution, perhaps the deepest diminution of all. If the whole self is the concern and the theater of God's saving work, then the past of the self must be included in the scope of this work. I think that at the heart of what Rowan Williams is saying here is this, that God's saving work, his forgiveness of our sin, his making us whole again, involves the gift of truthful memory so that we can look back on our past and know that it is forgiven rather than just forgotten or hidden. How then do we deal with our past? We need to undertake an honest appraisal of ourselves, recognizing truthfully the things that we have said and done which have caused hurt to others, expressing our repentance in words and in deeds. And for the injured party, we need an act of forgiveness. And to receive or to give forgiveness is truly liberating because it frees us from living in a fantasy about who we are. You know how it's very easy to fall into telling ourselves little lies to persuade ourselves that we're really doing okay. But forgiveness does something different. Forgiveness involves the recognition of the truth of who we and who others are. But forgiveness refuses to then condemn us or other people with the truth. That's what forgiveness does. It, it's truthful, but it doesn't condemn. We are liberated and set free to live truthful and renewed lives. The poet T.S. Eliot hints at this whole area uh, in the last of one of his poems in which he writes, A people without history is not redeemed from time. What is true for us as individuals is also true for us as communities. We need to receive God's gift of true memory, not burying memory, denying it or destroying it, so that we can also know that we are truly forgiven. In the very final scene of 
eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, we see Joel and Clementine facing a choice. They have discovered and heard the tape recordings that each of them made when they requested the memory destruction process. Now they know that they have had an unsuccessful past. Now they have to face up to the pain that they have caused one another. The question then remains, having honestly recognized their past, can they forgive each other and grasp hold of a hope for their future? That's a question that is already answered for us in Jesus Christ. God has forgiven us in Christ and offers us the gift of truthful memory so that we might be reconciled with our past, with all its pain and regret, just as Peter was that morning on the Galilee shore. Our memories healed, our sins forgiven, our lives renewed, and our hope restored. That's the gift of God in Jesus Christ to each one of us. Let's receive it with thanks. going to keep a moment of silence and in a little while we're going to use the um, the ancient Christian celebration of the recollection of memory as we remember how Jesus died and rose again as we share bread and wine as a sign and a token of his sacrifice and his love for us. But before we do that, I just want to encourage you to allow the Spirit of God to search your hearts. And All of us have those um, hidden parts of our lives, those painful memories that we keep hidden uh, deep down, that we suppress, denying, hoping that they will be obliterated. I believe that um, God wants to bring his forgiveness into those deep and dark places of our lives to bring his light into those parts of our past that we have tried to bury away. Father, thank you that in Jesus Christ all that is broken, all that is dark, all that is faulty and corrupted 
every part of our lives, past, present, and future, is forgiven, is made new, is made whole. I want to encourage us to um, take a bit of a step of faith tonight. Um, let's all stand together uh, because this is a way we can embody our response. Would you like to stand? Um, and maybe keeping our eyes closed. If you know that there is an area of your life that is in need of this um, forgiveness, this gift of truthful memory, this reconciliation between your past and your present and your future self, um, and you need God to touch that. It could be any manner of things. Um, The kind of embarrassing story I told earlier or something far more profound. Uh, Even as we have our eyes closed, just raise your hands uh, in front of you. I'm keeping my eyes closed so I don't even know. It doesn't matter what the um, issue is, what the past is. What By standing and by raising our hands to the Lord, we are bringing it into the light. And Lord Jesus, trusting that you are good and you desire good things for each and every one of us. We thank you that you have forgiven us. We thank you that there is no part of ourselves that we need to bury, hide, or obliterate. We thank you that you loved the whole of our lives. that the whole of our self is the scope and the theatre of your saving work. Come, Holy Spirit, and make all things new. Forgive what is past. Renew all that is present. and fill us with hope for what is to come. For some of us here, this is going to be a a painful thing. and um, If you need to express this with tears, just go ahead and cry. just want to in the quiet of your hearts say thank you to God for his forgiveness thank you to God
for his love and for the life that he gives us. Thanking God is a way of receiving from God. Usually when we're uh, with friends or family, we are given a gift and then we say thank you. But with God, it's the other way around. We say thank you and we receive the gift. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. for um, some of us here as well uh, you're being set free right now and you may even feel as though um, manacles or chains or handcuffs are falling from your wrists and from your feet because actually all that you've been trying to suppress has been enslaving you all that you've been trying to forget has been binding you and you don't need to forget because God knows and you are forgiven may even find yourself welling up with um, with joy and with uh, happiness and laughter because you're set free you are set free going to um, respond uh, or bring our response to a conclusion as we uh, share the Lord's Supper with one another sharing bread and wine now we're going to do it a little differently this evening we're still using ordinary bread and ordinary wine tonight's is a um, Portuguese Castellau it's very nice, I've drunk a bottle of this already and, um, but I'm going to lead us in a prayer then I'm just going to leave the table aside here and if you want to respond tonight if you want to um, receive afresh this gift of forgiveness and love then just maybe Adam will play some a little bit of kind of uh, accompanying music in a, in a moment and um, as we listen and after I prayed you can just come and serve yourself so I'm not going to bring it to the tables this time just if you want to step out uh, come and get it um. I'll put some wine in a few glasses so there'll be a choice
We praise you, Father, Lord of all creation, because in your love you made us for yourself. When we turned away, you didn't reject us, but you came to meet us in your Son. In Christ, you shared our life, that we might live in him and he in us. On the night that he was betrayed at supper with his friends, he took bread and he gave you thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As we proclaim his death and we celebrate his rising in glory, send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. Send your Holy Spirit on us that with your whole church throughout the world we may offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven. As we pray together the words of the Lord's Prayer using the contemporary version, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now.